jumping forward to the experience of New York City over the past century, I alluded to the anxiety of the good citizens of New York at the very moment when the development of the city's architecture seemed to suggest that the gods of the city's past were ceding authority as the gods of its future. You can locate this anxiety quite precisely. Here's a famous photograph taken in 1924 by the German architect Erich Mendelssohn, Mendelssohn, a German Jewish architect who eight years later fled Germany for England and then into America. It was a photograph subsequently used for the cover of the English translation of this 1925 book, America, an architect's picture book, which was based on his voyage to America, which shaped European architects' conceptions of the culture, the nature, sorry, of this country's cities. And by the way, this like New York City is a Babel-like cauldron in a context that makes the popular idea of the melting pot sound rather more sinister. We do remember that the main late 20s were followed usually by the early 30s when we began taking increasingly violent measures in the attempt to deny that it too might be a melting pot. What interests us here are the words used to annotate the photograph. Translation reads something like, once surely a place of worship for adventurers at sea, today with its Gothic tower and its churchyard, a European relic of a still higher order and an otherworldly authority. Adventurers at sea. Reference to first of all, the view of New York City from the harbor, the view of America, of the New World as you approach by sea after crossing the Atlantic, passing that road on the way. For many years, the 280-foot Gothic spire of Trinity was the tallest point on the New York skyline here in 1889. View out to sea and also the panorama. You can see the Trinity over on the right. Spire greeting travelers from Europe with an image of a city that seems in this regard at least not altogether different from that of the historic European city. You saw this in Cuba. Of course, there are many, many other similar photographs, all showing the Gothic cathedral rising above the roofs of the historic city which is built quite literally around the central landmark of the tower. The tower, the product, at least in the uh, historical imagination of generations of collective effort and the emblem of an ostensible unity that is not only physical. Now, for many years, Trinity's tower was the tallest point on the New York skyline, in fact, the tallest building in America. But that began to change quite dramatically with the rise of the city's financial interests around about it. The citizens saw it coming. Here's an 1875 Harper's cartoon quote A view of Trinity Church in the immediate future as they go on putting up floors in the style they're now building. And soon, photographs like the one on the left were replaced in the popular consciousness by photographs like this one on the right, taken in 1915. The spire of Trinity, the same architecture now literally overshadowed by the newer towers around it. 
the citizens of New York worried about this. They worried out loud. And they illustrated their fascinations and their worries on the pages of their newspapers. So did the architects. They expressed their doubts about modernity using images, architectural images, images drawn also from antiquity. Specifically, they turned to one of my own uh, research interests, the motif of Babel, the story of a people who had abandoned the God of their earlier chapters, a people who found themselves building architecture. They worried about what it meant when what could once have passed as the spiritual center of their city, the, the center around which all else seemed together, was lost in a thicket of competing financial interests. Financial interests that were in fact central to the identity and the prosperity of the modern city. They worried about what it meant to the one-time symbol of a city apparently built around a faith in a higher authority, an immovable authority, and God we trust, after all, right? To be obliterated quite literally by the symbols of economic striving and its corresponding anxiety. It didn't help that the images like this one, Trinity's dark fire was silhouetted against the sheer walls of a ring of towers that culminated in the mass of the newly constructed equitable life insurance building. almost inevitable. What, after all, is life insurance if not an attempt to build a financial hedge around human mortality through the collaboration of large numbers of individuals to build a structure that promises security on the other lines and human claims of our existence. This particular structure, the largest office building in the world, that now places its trust not in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, but, but in the calculated pooled risk of a commercial life insurance company. No wonder, perhaps, that life insurance companies care about their buildings. Notice, by the way, that architecture is not always so obviously the discipline at the root of these worries. It's our school broader and deeper changes in culture and society. But it is often architecture that makes these changes evident, more evident perhaps than anything, almost anything else. In the case of New York City, what is especially evident is an accelerating race for height. The self-consciously highest building in the world is competing with the discipline's own history and what might be the crassest possible category. But under the conditions of modernity, architecture now represents not, say, the Egyptian pyramid dreams of immortality, nor down at the bottom the church of Hagia Sophia's formal dedication to God, nor even perhaps St. Peter's embrace of the Catholic Church as a worldwide community of the faithful, but rather the Singer Manufacturing Company, mechanized 
mass producer of machines for the modern consumer. And this drawing is taken from a full vanity publication by the government of the institution. And we could look more about these sorts of images, more about the implications of left imaginative lineups like this one in the city. Ostensibly definitive, but uh, actually rather highly debatable, perpetually in danger of going obsolete. Showing the Singer building, and you can only read this if it's close to the screen. The Singer building now marked destroyed, a little to the right of the world building, marked destroyed, followed by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Tower, another life insurance building, uh, which had an illuminated beacon at the crown of its fire, a sort of lighthouse approaching the venture of the sea, advertising quasi religious terms as, quote, the lights that never fail. And then the Trump building, oh yes, this is the designation of Houston near the bottom, office, 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 and the Chrysler building, the Empire State Building, and the World Trade Center, also marked destroyed, initially followed by the World Trade Center once again, but slightly taller, depending on how you turn. Shouldn't be Wall Street shown over on the left. Their place of worship for adventures at sea. Today, with its Gothic tower and its churchyard of Europe, and its Rapid, Ohio, and other worldly Mendelssohn wrote that it's interested in New York City as a model city, a world city, a pattern for the future. It's a city of significance, the shape of modernity. Mendelssohn, too, first approached Manhattan by sea, now ours. On the SS Deutschland, one of these intercontinental steamships that proved so fascinating to And Mendelssohn was not alone. On the uh, deck of that same steamship in October 1934, was standing the filmmaker Fritz Lang, also a um, who watched, uh, the two of them watched the approach of Manhattan together. He too was deeply struck by the image of the city. Impressions would find their way not only onto the pages of that book America, uh, but also to the architecture of his film Metropolis, from which he had just begun working. He said that here in a personal account of his experience, and I quote, where is the film about one of these Babylon stone portions of South America? It's a fable that he may not play the very specific role of
the illuminated crown of the tower sketched by the architect Urat House, the drawing sent in 1919. Remember that the so-called crystal chain of sort of speculative post-war correspondence of the played an important role in defining the expression of This is a very strange drawing for several reasons we don't have time to go into it today. I would only like to note that Bruno's house, too, was obsessed with the problem of the power in the city. Uh, his book, 1919, shut called as a city crown, is full of images of cathedrals rising above the fabric of the historic European city, presented alongside images of corresponding monuments by the culture. The question, of course, being what might take their place in the modern German city? A city no longer defined as ever it was by a vital faith in God, but after all the dead. Cities typically shaped by the immediate human Cities frequently marked by a confusion of tongues, a plurality of cultures, not typically a new city built on a conceptual equivalent of an I'm sure they just worship the venture to see today with this Gothic tower and churchyard and the The church is here imagined as a sort of archaeological relic of a world that is obsolete. The language of world authority is preserved in the name of the World Trade Center nearby. Preserved also, arguably, in the World Trade Center. Controls and certainly in reputation. Very Pentagon of Power, the architectural critic Montford, criticized the architect Yamataki's so called Gothic modernism as, I quote, a characteristic example of the purposeless giantism and technological exhibitionism that are now eviscerating the living tissue of every great Accumulating motivation. I look forward to the destruction of the World Trade Center, of course, must be replaced. The new World Trade Center now belongs very much to the present. But images like this one, attractive though they may be, belong firmly to the past, along with the world that they seem to represent. Generally, you might argue that the idea that any one god might have any valid claims on the American city today seems at best positively quaint, at worst dangerous. And that, of course, is the willing seat of the gods, say, finance, global trade, which is Back against the moment of this discussion, I then turned to Aristotle to activism. And I argued that the urban experience of the past few years, specifically its apparent failure to pursue the good of its citizens, seems to be provoking a growing sense that those goods are escaping us, that 
They brought the fading ones, using uh, images, in this case, from protests in Santiago, Chile, but we could other comparable images from other places, too. Uh, I argued that here, too, the narratives inscribed onto the city's architecture reveal the gods that have been invoked. For this, up on the Acropolis, the high city, those narratives are looking down from above, but they're enthroned by the city leaders. In Santiago, the narratives are pasted on at ground level, right by the sidewalk, at our head height, and they're more ephemeral, and the narratives are also contested by the ruling authorities. Returning to this picture, I ended last week with a reference to Paul, who was shown in the foreground delivering the famous speech recorded in the Book of Acts, chapter 17, in which he effectively points to an altar that is dedicated to the unknown God and proceeds to name that God. If you're all familiar with that speech, you will know that Paul argues, and this is even more offensive today, perhaps, than when you first said it, that he argues that the Christian God is not merely one of many other foreign divinities, as he puts it, um, that is not just a local God with the authority over a collection of but that this God is none other than the creator of the universe, the architect of all things, if you like, who doesn't live in human architectures. He essentially expands the framework of this relationship between the good of the city and the God of the city. He now gives the good not only of the city, but also the individual can be found only through an accurate naming of this unknown God. Then, and like to argue this evening, the meaning of the gods of our city, the meaning of the gods of our city is such that it would articulate not only the goods of our cities, but perhaps also the good of our cities. And I promise this week to present a more focused case study of what's known as like and this is engraved from the, from the last five photos. And I made this disclaimer last week for those of you who were here. And uh, indeed, we're trying to pull together some things that I have not pulled together before. And, and you may, you will no doubt notice some, uh, some gaps, and certainly there are some gaps. And during the fall semester, I teach a survey course on the history of One of the chapters in that history deals, of course, with Byzantine architecture. Unsurprisingly, I find myself showing pictures of various churches, the most famous of which is the 6th century church of Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom, in Istanbul. Which was later converted into a mosque. This is a structure of which the exterior is big, yes. But that's not typically the focus of attention. The exterior is relatively austere, stone lined in bed. And the minarets, which were added later after the conversion of the mosque, served to mark the limits of space, which is 
find the two things within the city, which is creates a world landscape that extends beyond the it's a mountain of a building in its own right, but the exterior, as you can see, is heavily buttressed. And would it primarily be possible to the interior? Technically, the design is a fusion of double shells, domes, Byzantine architecture with the older form of the Roman basilica. It has a horizontal axis, it has maps, it has a sense of horizontal direction. But above the wall, it also has a dome, or rather a whole collection of domes. In fact, Hagia Sophia exploits almost every type of dome you can think of, including spaces defined by columnar screens, with bulging, concave, light filled surfaces behind, surfaces enriched not least by spectacular glowing mosaics. But above this entire assembly is architecture that possesses its own quality of light, the glorious central dome on pendentives with a ring of light at its base that causes the dome to float. The contemporary historian Procopius spoke of parts, quote, joined to one another in the air suspended one from another, resting only on that which is next to them. Men, he says, are unable to comprehend such workmanship. It would be offsets by Notice that the dome appeared to be suspended from the heavens by a Worth pointing out that the character of this interior has always been understood to carry meaning. The mechanical aspect of architecture, the resolution of the laws of physics, capacity to resist the downward force of gravity, the distribution of weight, the selection of materials, etc. All of this is understood to be not of earth, but of heaven. The physical is understood to communicate the metaphysical. This is the most literal for an interpretation perhaps that Latin place is ex machina, God and machine. Now, in our class, we don't only look at that novel report, we also study the students in architecture that are field in Italy, right here. Again, exteriors may be rather austere, but again, it is when we step inside that the world suddenly changes, we encounter this light, this atmosphere, this Distinctively Byzantine material, again marked by vaulting, by 
separating the sanctuary from the nave, a typical feature of Byzantine churches, they inside the church transfiguration. It is named, by the way, in memory of the account of the transfiguration of Jesus, an event described in the New Testament, and I quote here from the Gospel of Matthew, for he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. For a moment, the radiance of heavenly glory shines through his body, and his disciples are overwhelmed by wonder because they realize that there is something going on here that they cannot quite explain. For a moment, in other words, the ordinary way of things is for a brief space of time overwhelmed by a transcendent glory. Ordinary way of Overwhelmed for a brief space of time by a transcendent glory, glory or hope Russia. Byzantium in Russia. Okay. What is the thing that communicates the glory of Byzantium? I would argue that it is not least the light. The color, the reflection off the surface of the icons framed in burnished gold. And then we go so far to say that this light belongs to the Byzantine interior of the Byzantine church. But even when you enter, say, the, the Greek Orthodox Church of the Annunciation on New York's Upper West Side, not so far from here, you recognize right away the name of a certain kind of becomes what will feel like a jump. Talk for a moment about Apple thoughts. You can watch this. You know how Apple owns a certain kind of light. Almost as if it has a proprietary atmosphere, a certain set of a kind of light that suggests that being part of this culture, only these things, is associated not with sitting on your bed in a dark basement playing video games alone, <laughs> but rather with a certain sort of clarity, openness, perhaps even freedom, a lightness. Both literal and metaphorical. In the same likeness that is advertised also in the objects on display, and we brought to the most diverse architectures, in different places, new and old, globally. And the austerity of the exterior and of the interior, of the forms, of the materials, of the color palette, actually serves to heighten the impact of those moments of practical glory.
freedom is accessible. Entrance is free. All are welcome. In fact, they have literally removed the wall, have they not? The wall that separates the sacred from the profane. You, you walk straight through, as if through the iconostasis, straight into the sanctuary. You can enter on access beneath the sacred sign. And if you've been here, this one happens to be in you know that there are priests waiting to greet you, and they take your name, and in due course they usher you to the genius bar that's defining the sort of simplified transept at the far end of the space, and which takes the form of a table, except that this one doesn't have legs, so maybe it's more an altar. But everyone is welcome at this table, are they not? And the world outside may be a mess, but when you step inside, Order. Perfectly controlled interiors set off from the messy inconsistencies of the natural order. Because they're throwing Sully. That he is leading the Yakish activity in the among the most highly designed spaces in our contemporary culture. Spaces that advertise their products to two decimal points in the dimensions that they provide for one on the next. And they also represent a global power, a global authority that extends from America, Russia, to China, and back again. And even if there is no logo visible in this image, you know it's Apple, at least because there is a certain clarity to the organization of space. And there's that particular ear in lighting again. This above. And here there's even a sort of clear story lighting, high above. Here's where they have turned on ecclesiastical architecture which allows you to see that the world outside and beyond is not quite like this interior. In fact, it's a different color. And here there's even a central maze and side aisles with evenly spaced columns marching down and past them a screen beyond which a staircase leads we presume to a better place and, and, there's, and there's a gallery above the side aisle from which you can look down. There are no pews as such because the worshippers stand to worship. Space is designed circumambulation to allow for procession down the aisles, pausing at the various stations where the objects of devotion are raised up. It has to be cool with things that you value, you raise them up. These objects of consumer desire are raised up on a carefully designed pedestal. Worthy of veneration, as objects that can be yours, that can be yours in a uniquely personal way. Mm -hmm. You might carry one with you all the time, 
as a token of the devotion close to your body. And perhaps this little piece of very careful design of the architecture knows you. Perhaps it recognizes your fingerprints. Perhaps it even recognizes your face. Perhaps it can tell your heart from your identical twin. Perhaps you find it reassuring to know that you are the only person in this world who can access what you know is the part. Quite unlike what used to be the case of the telephone, quite unlike various other technologies, which is also the case. I can disregard it perhaps worth noting that the cell phone mirrors the development of religion because Western culture, that too, after all, is today increasingly important. The very thought of placing an image of the goddess above the city seems distinctly unmodern. But to bow your head to your profile is perfectly normal. Twenty five times a day, but rather more often I'm sure you understand that it's but it looks up here too. And there are images on the board that are designed to appeal to the faithful. Most of all there are didactic functions, because we all know that potential devotees are more likely to respond to your religious than to the text. In fact, there's not even any text in the world, it's just a symbol, an icon. An icon is a representative of the world. Icon is my I haven't deliberately chosen to worship my smartphone, but when you repeatedly bow your head to something, stroking it thousands of times a day, it begins to shine like an idol. That's from a uh, recent New York Times article that's well, well, I will tie quick my smartphone. One of course is in Chongqing, China, which might compare the ruined follows of the sanctuary of Athena Pronaya at Delta. Athena Pronaya. Latin phrase, Deus ex machina, God from the machine, is borrowed from the Greek apomechanistheos, from the machine God. The phrase was used to describe the moment in certain Greek tragedies and their derivatives when an actor who plays the part of the God is brought onto the stage through some contrivance or other 
sometimes literally a mechanical contraction that allows him, say, to fly through the air, entering the narrative just in time to bring to closure an otherwise irresolvable situation. Precisely the sort of thing that Aristotle criticizes for, for being artificial, for relying on a conceit outside the established boundaries of the whole narrative. And this is the sense in which the modern mind, especially, the mechanism of the Deus ex machina within the tragedy represents a triple artificial. Take an example of the Eumenides, the third and final play in Aeschylus' Aristiah. The Aristiah is ultimately a trilogy about justice, yes. So about a search for the good. But first and foremost, it is about the vicious cycle of violence and retaliation. Greek tragedy here lays out in all its wretchedness the very stuff of human history. And the single tragedy, as it turns out, is insufficient. Aeschylus gives us three in a row, and they all belong together in the most wretchedly predictable sequence of cause and effect. By the time we get to the third installment, the misery is unbearable. This is also where the action of the play shifts to the city of Athens and the story of the model city, the model of the city of mercy, the would-be sanctuary city. And here it is, if you know the amenities, that we find the play's protagonist on the Acropolis a murderer pursued by the avenging furies, bringing his arms in desperation and in supplication about the legs of the statue of Athena. His prayers seem to be in vain, and the furies are about to destroy him, exacting the just revenge that has been the recurring theme throughout the trilogy. But just at that moment, Athena herself appears rather unexpectedly on the scene. This is the Deus Ex Machina. Lo and behold, the goddess of wisdom and justice, an urban goddess, by the way, the patron of Athens, no less, she sets up a trial scene on the Areopagus that saves Orestes from the Furies. And the Furies, in the process, the Furies are renamed the Eumenides, the only one. The vicious cycle of retaliatory violence, the misery of human history, is brought to an end by the direct intervention of the goddess. That is now in the second modern time, the mechanism is And that it represents triple artificiality. First, the goddess Athena is, we would insist, a human construct. 
And she does not, in fact, intervene in history to impose justice for Francis. She, like the dramatic work she appears in, is classified by the modern mind under the category of fiction. Second, the actor in the play is, in any case, only pretending to be the goddess. And third, there is an explicit artifice to the way the actor is brought into the narrative. And the literal response to the criticism, as I understand it, is to present the Oresaya as a narrative about the foundation of urban institutions but this only goes so far. It breaks down precisely at the moment when the human artifice of the institutions of public justice begins to come. The the old part is describe our own only today, where the American justice system and the dynamic of the Chilean justice system is identified first of all as something that is prevalent in need of radical reform and reconstruction. If the violence of peaceless or sire is indeed a faithful register of the great country, but the failure of that which Aristotle identified as the highest good. Its proposed resolution in the form of the Deus Ex Machina is the most artificial form of artifice. The violence is real, the redemption is virtual. Rehearsed in your mind the comparison between Athens and Constantinople. The story of Athena, goddess of wisdom, and the story of that other embodiment of wisdom, the church of Sophia, holiness, holiness, shrine of the holy wisdom of God. If you, after all, we encounter a narrative of violence, of justice, of redemption, a narrative represented, I presume, at the altar that once stood the church. The premise of Christian doctrine, I like tragedy, is that the act of redemption was an historical uh, event, as historical and as real as the act of violence. Christian doctrine insists that it is in the death of Christ on the cross, in the subjection of the divine to the machine of violence, that the demands of justice are satisfied, such as they can give way to the possibility of grace. And also, for the Gothic cathedral portal, as we mentioned last week. That was then, and this is now. What can we moderns offer as a place? I'm not confident that we have any answers. The architecture of the United States institutions of justice and logic. Trust. And so, by the way, are the other institutions that we have relied upon in the past. We have lost faith that we not one by one in the institutions of politics, of corporate America, the church. 
church, of the academy, of technology. There's no redemption to be found in Apple. He was reading it ten years ago. There was a widespread enthusiasm, at least in my world, the school of architecture, an enthusiasm for the emerging possibilities of virtual reality. Possibilities that the Godwood pushed toward justice between us. That enthusiasm has been replaced in the last few years by cynicism. I'm not going to propose solutions to this. But I am going to end by returning my original thesis, which is that I want to that there is a value to naming Gods of the same. Such a very least begin to understand that which we assess the authority.